Let's get our Bibles out. Good morning to all you joining us online. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, page 1318 in the Pew Bible there in front of you. We're going to continue the conversation that we started two weeks ago. Uh, obviously, we weren't together last week because of Hurricane Ida. Now, we are uh, going to be sending teams uh, to Homa to be working to help those affected by the storm. If you go online to our website, you'll see that you can uh, already give to the relief efforts. You can just go online and click on Ida Relief and give to that, or you can write uh, Hurricane Relief on your envelope and drop it in the offering box on your way out. Uh, as uh, Samaritan's Purse gets their base set up in Homa, then we will, once all that's established and they're ready to begin to take uh, crews will start to go over there, and you'll be able to sign up to do that. And because of the close proximity, we'll be able to do that in community. So you can get together with a, a few of us can get together at a time and go over there and serve and uh, spend some uh, time over there helping them as we certainly know what it's like to be in their shoes. Amen. So uh, just keep posted for information in that regard. Now, before we jump into this conversation, we should pray and ask God to help us because we will need it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of knowing and serving a God who speaks and who desires to be known by his people. You don't have to, but you do out of the goodness of who you are. And we are grateful. And so will you help us, Lord? You know our need. We need ears to hear. Holy Spirit, we pray you will embed these words in our heart and help us to receive the things that you want to say to us both individually and collectively this morning. God, may all this be for your honor and for your glory, for only you are due it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So, you can get your listening guide out. Now, just a word about that. If some of you have discovered uh, this little known truth, and that is that when we first, some years ago, when we first uh, started doing these listening guides, and then as we moved into two services and community groups in the middle and so on and so forth, one of the concerns that a lot of people had initially was, you know, how do we, um, how do we, if we come to second service, you know, how does that affect the conversation about the sermon? And what we've discovered is that, I mean, which I knew this, but I just needed other people to discover this, is that it is uh, highly beneficial to go to community group first discuss a sermon you haven't even heard and then come in here and what it does is it builds context and anticipation and so you might think that it would be more difficult but in actuality and there are ways in which it's actually more beneficial and some of you know that and I just want to encourage any of you in the room that aren't involved in community group that you need to be and just because you come to second service uh, has absolutely nothing to do with it you'll find that it's very very helpful Anyway, so you got your listening guides out. You remember the last time we were together, we talked about how God has called his people to a particular place in a particular way. And we talked about, I introduced this idea of pilgrimage. Well, today I want us to think of it in terms of God has called his people to a particular mission to be accomplished in a particular way. Because we need to finish the conversation, like I said, that we started. Now, we've been studying for the months and months and months now, verse by verse, through this letter, 1 Corinthians. And what we've begun to uh, realize as we've done this, we, we're starting to, to really understand what's going on in Corinth and what the problem is in Corinth and what God is using the Apostle Paul to speak to the people in Corinth. And we realize that Corinth is a church that is... 
uh, little and young and new, and they're in the midst of a, a vast uh, city with a vast economy with many distractions and many uh, temptations. But with all of that said, the church itself is struggling because they're misdirected. Listen, these, uh, these are people who are, their, their lives are full, they're busy, they're zealous. They haven't stopped going to church, they haven't stopped worshiping, they haven't stopped reading their Bible, they haven't stopped participating in the Lord's Supper. They're doing all of these things. They're busy, they're full, they're active. They're just misdirected. They've lost their way. We said that misdirection is the quintessential symptom of a faulty identity in Christ. That the way you know that you're not living out your identity in Christ is because your life becomes misdirected. And what I mean by that is take a look around at the church today and what you'll see is a sea of misdirection you see people who are busy their lives are, are filled with so many things oftentimes good things not passive they're actively working to increase their cause and their condition and being successful oftentimes in doing so they're they're we live in a culture where the, the Christian culture of today is using its, its giftedness and uh, creativity to pursue a better life. But at the end of the day, in the deepest corners of many church-going people's hearts, there's a feeling of, discontentment, disconnectedness, dissatisfaction. I see a Christian culture today that's filled with people that if they were honest, they're bored. Their relationship with God is not the most exciting part of their life. It's not what they think most about. It's not what they're most enthusiastic and where they find most fulfillment. And, and yet they go through the motions. They're misdirected. Now we have to understand when we're talking about this identity, because when I we've been talking about identity for months, but it's a, it's a conversation that you have to keep revisiting and you have to keep putting layers on top of it to understand. Because if I say to you, that, you know, if I talk to you about your identity in Christ, you begin to, most of you begin to think about verses in Scripture that tell you who you are in Christ. And all of those things are part of your identity. But really, all of that really comes to bear, will either sink or swim on this issue well, what, what does it look like to experience your identity in Christ? What does it look like? What would your life look like if you knew who you were in Christ and if you lived like who you are in Christ? What would that look like? And so I'm breaking it down by showing you that the identity of a Christ follower is composed of two things. Mission and pilgrimage. And as I've spent months and months studying 1 Corinthians, and if, if you've ever been through Starting Point, then you know that um, the way I study the Scripture is through repetition. And so by reading it over and over and over and over, you begin to see things you, you never knew were there. And this issue of mission and pilgrimage just begins to emerge out of what God is showing us here. And I also recognize that this idea of pilgrimage is new to most people, so we'll help clarify some things today. Now, mission, we're more familiar with, right? 
Remember, we defined mission two weeks ago as the deliberate, determined, intentional use of the resources and freedoms God has given us to make Him known. So on the path of discipleship, the pathway of discipleship, our goal for every person, every part of this family is to ultimately become a person who makes Him known. That's the mission. So at the end of chapter 9, I want you to look with me, beginning in verse 24, as Paul is going to talk to us about mission. Remember these verses. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way as to obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, Paul says, I run thus, not, as, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. You see, Paul here is talking about mission. Mission. And each of us, I, I emphasize, all. I run, I fight, it's my body. Uh, I, when I have preached to others, I myself would be disqualified because the mission, this race that we run is an individual race. We each run, we're each responsible to run the race in such a way as to win. See, all the runners run, Paul said, but you and me are individually responsible to run in such a way as to win. Right? And so the running your race is your mission. And so it, it looks a little bit different for each of us. Each of us run the race that God's called us to. It's not the same exact race. But then Paul says, if you don't run it correctly, you can become disqualified. And there he's talking about pilgrimage. Here's a way for you to understand how this works. Mission is the race. Pilgrimage is the course. We're each called to, our, to run our individual race, but all the runners have to run according to the course. If you run off the course, you're disqualified. You cannot win your race. It's your race. But you cannot win it. You cannot be successful at it unless you run the course that God has set out for all the runners. And then chapter 10, verse 1, we shift into a pilgrimage conversation. Moreover, the Bible says, brethren, family, I do not want you to be unaware of that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, verse 5. You see, there's this conversation about running the course staying on the course, but with most of them they were not pleased. You see, they deviated from the course, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They didn't achieve their objective. Verse 6, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, nor complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age had come. Now verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you, except such as is common to man. 
But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now what I want us to do is focus in on verses 12 and 13. And I want you to, uh, almost all of us in this room are familiar with these two verses. We've heard them quoted. We've seen them in various different contexts. And here's how you've mostly experienced these verses. Pulled out of context and applied as some personal promise to you. And that's not at all the context. So let's look again afresh and anew and see what we can see here. Paul brings this conversation about how all of the people in the Exodus journey in the wilderness experienced all these things together. This, it's all together. And then he says, don't get proud. Don't start thinking that there's a different way to run, that there's a, your own course, that you could do this your own way. You could, you could take a shortcut, or you could get in a hurry, or you could slow down, or you could do whatever you want to do. And then he says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. Now, here's my question. Why doesn't the Bible just say, hey, listen, no temptation has overtaken you. There's always going to be a way of escape. Why doesn't it say that? Why does the Bible say, but such is common to man? What difference does that make? What difference does it make? In other words, if all we need to know is that we won't be tempted more than we can bear and they'll, because there'll always be a way of escape, then why doesn't it just say that? What difference does it make that we've all shared in these temptations? It makes all the difference in the world. Because it's exactly the way in which you're either going to be successful or you're going to be taken captive by these temptations. See, here's, here's the, the, the truth that we all know. Satan is going to use isolation as a tool to discourage us into thinking that we're the only ones facing some temptation. Isn't that what's going to happen? Isn't that when trouble's going to come in? If he can get you to think that you're alone in your struggle and your sinful desires, he's going to isolate you from the pack, from the group, from the family, and you're going to be overtaken. And so the context is that we're in this together. And the fact that we all face these things together is a key component to being successful. Just think about this now. In all temptation that a Christian faces, what the Bible's saying is that there's a way of escape. But you don't have to take it. You don't have to take it. You can be overtaken by the temptation. Just because there's an escape route available doesn't mean you'll take it. But what the Bible wants us to know is that as we go through these things together and we realize we're not alone, we'll be far more successful. Now, let's look closely again. What do you think the temptation is that's common to all men? Does it mean that every temptation is every temptation that I have struggled with, you've struggled with? Is that what that means? I mean, does that make sense to you? Because clearly, I mean, let's just look around the room. We don't all struggle with the same temptation. So what does this mean? What is 
the temptation that is common to all of us. And it's this. To have it both ways. In other words, to experience the, the safety and the peace that comes with a relationship with God, with a pilgrimage with God, on one hand, but on the other hand, to not have to sacrifice our desires. To, rem to, to you know, remain in the right to be able to do things our own way at times. To exercise our freedom with regards to the pilgrimage. That's what it is for me and for you. For every one of us in this room. You see, when, whenever we question God, whenever we blame God, whenever we grumble against God, you go back and you look at these examples that, that Paul gives from the book of Numbers, from the Old Testament. All of them represent places where our desires have been infringed upon. You see, whenever there's, a, whenever there's a time in your life when you're frustrated because things haven't gone the way you think they ought to go, have you ever thought about this? It's because the way you think they ought to go, you think is better than the way it went. You see, if sometimes in life, things go better than you thought they would go. And in those situations, you're good. You see, we only desire things to be different if our desire is not to have them the way they are. Okay, let, let me explain this to you. Think about it. A few weeks back, I said ground zero in the war against mission is our desires. Remember that? Well, what do you think ground zero in the war against pilgrimage is? Our desires. Let me show you. Look back at verse 13. Look. It does not say God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not what the verse says. What the verse says is God is going to challenge you beyond your ability to bear it so that you trust fully in Him. He's going to give you a, a way of escape so that you'll lean upon Him, so that you'll turn into Him. But notice how the verse begins. No temptation has overtaken you. Overtaken. So what is the goal of temptation? It's to overtake you. It's to dominate you. It's to control you. Now let's just have a little gospel refresher. When the grace of God comes into our life, it brings freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Right? Freedom from, not freedom to. So Jesus dies on the cross... We then receive Him as Lord and Savior and find freedom from the bonds of sin. We no longer have to sin. We have an escape route, but we don't have to take it, but we have it. So when we sin, we're choosing Slavery to sin. We're choosing that. But it's strange how in the Christian culture today it's been inverted. It's strange how we find ourselves being critical of the things that are going on in the world. What we want is that we want the world to act like us. And when we do that, you know what we're doing? We're negating the necessity of Jesus dying on the cross. We're assuming that a, a lost world 
can behave in a Christian way apart from Christ. Isn't that interesting? We're mad because lost people won't act saved. Huh. What we ought to be frustrated at is when Christians treat people in a way they ought not treat people. Or when Christians listen to gossip. Or when Christians choose sexual immorality. That's what we ought to be frustrated at because we have a choice. We have a choice. We have an escape route. Out. But it's so much easier to be frustrated at everyone else. See, Paul is just reminding us that God's not going to let us be tempted without a way out. He's not going to allow that. See, now let's be clear. God's, God doesn't tempt us. Do you understand that? The Bible's clear about that. What God does is allows temptation. He is the He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. So if anything comes into our life, it has to pass through Him. Now, why would God allow us to be tempted? You see, wouldn't you... Well, well, let's just... I'm going to ask you about 30 questions this morning, so you're going to have to start thinking. So now's a good time to start. Wonder why when God saved us, He didn't just eliminate our ability to be tempted. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Why didn't he do that? He could have done that. Why didn't he? And not only that, he allows us to be tempted. Why? What's the reason? He does it in order to grow us, to change us. That's why he's, that's why we just had these illustrations of, of the temptations that were struggled, struggled with in the wilderness and the, the, the problem of falling to them. You see, overcoming temptation, when you overcome temptation in your life, do you know what you do? You make your testimony visible. That's what you do. You glorify God by your actions. See, temptation preys on desire. You, you, you have to understand. That. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Now these things became our examples. Look at what the Bible says. To the intent that we should not lust, or if you have the ESV, desire. That we should not desire after evil things as they also desired. That's the word, you see? They desired them. So what you have to do is you first have to understand this issue of desire versus temptation and temptation versus desire. Okay, let me make it real for you. You can't tempt me with Brussels sprouts. No matter how hard you try, it's never going to work. But a Reese's peanut butter cup is a different story. You see, temptation has no power apart from desire. If I don't desire something, temptation's not an issue. So let's go back to where we were 10 minutes ago. Do we all, are we all tempted by the same things? Well, now hold on. In order for that to be, we all have to desire the same things. And I'm just here to tell you, I'm not speaking for you, I'm speaking for me. There's a bunch of people in this room that desire things Tony don't desire. I'm just letting you know right off the bat, it ain't happening. I'm not tempted by it. But there's things Tony desires that maybe you don't. You see? And so the, the temptation that befalls us all is to have it both ways. It's to be able to, to live. And remember, this is addressing 
Christians in the church. That's, we're not talking about the world. We're talking about people in the church who want to have it both ways. They're misdirected. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness? He gets baptized. He's led by the Spirit out in the wilderness. No food for 40 days. And then the devil comes and tempts him. Now what does the devil tempt him with? Food, right? I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine there's Jesus out in the wilderness. Hungry, man. 40 days, no food. He's hungry. And the devil comes along and says, Hey, Jesus, if you follow me, I'll let you go 10 more days without food. No, no. He says, I'll turn that rock into bread. Because if there's no desire, the temptation has no power. Look at James chapter 1. The Bible says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own, what is it? Desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full, fully grown, brings forth death. You see that? See, the problem in the Corinthian church, all these problems that they're facing, they can be traced back to the fact that they, they're, they've been mis, they're misdirected because they're, they've been tempted and they're giving in to these old desires. And so it's misdirecting them. And they're suffering the consequences prevalent in our day. Of a faulty identity. All right, so I have a question. Just one central question. I want us to spend the rest of the time this morning answering. There'll be a lot more questions along the way, but this is the main one. This is what I want you to think about. I want you to answer the question, am I a pilgrim or a tourist? Because we need some clarification on what this pilgrimage is? What does this look like? What is, the, what, what is the Bible trying to teach us here? So let's answer this question. So the tourist and the pilgrim are not different in every way. They have some similarities. They both embark on a journey. Would you agree? They both embark on a journey. But the tourist The tourist wants the journey to be comfortable. The tourist wants to go to a new and different place, but wants to keep experiencing somewhat familiar things. You understand what I'm saying? I've been all over the world. All over the world. And I've taken mission teams with me all over the world. And I know this like the back of my hand. You know what people want when they go to a foreign place? <laughs> it's very strange. You, you go to any foreign country anywhere in the world. Doesn't matter where. Go to the tourist areas. They all have them. And you're going to find Americanized versions of indigenous things. Now, let's think this through. So we go to a foreign country, but we really don't want to experience the foreign country. What we want to do is go to the foreign country, but in the foreign country, we want to experience the comforts of home. Have you ever thought about how ridiculous all of this is? It's very strange. You see, if you go to a foreign country and you go to the, 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 the tourist areas, you're not going to get the food that the local people eat, you're going to get the food that's been tilted so that Westerners like it, right? That's what's going to happen. Look, 
I've, I've been some crazy places and I've eaten some really crazy things. I mean, I've literally sat down and said, God, if you don't protect me and help me, I'm going to die right now. You see, because the Bible says that when you're, when you're his ambassador in a foreign land, you sit down and you accept what's given to you. And I hate that verse. Especially when I was in India. I got skinny in India. See, some of you, like if you want to know a guaranteed surefire weight loss strategy, go to India. It's, it's, it's happening. 100% guaranteed. You stay there long enough, you'll be skinny as a rail, I can assure you. Because it is nasty. Nasty. Now, but I survived it. I handled it. Now, when you go to an Indian restaurant, oh, it's delicious. You know why? Because you're not in India. But when you go out in the middle of nowhere in India, so there I am teaching in a seminary in India every day, like 14 hours a day. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm just, oh, man, I go back to my hotel. I'm just like, oh, good gracious. Can I make it another day? And here's the thing. Okay, I'm going to eat the Curry for breakfast, curry for lunch, curry for dinner. It's curry, curry, curry. Then you sweat curry. It's curries coming out of your hair. It's everywhere. You burp, and it's like, oh, goodness. But I can deal with that. But when you're in India, everything they drink in India, warm. Everything. So when you go to India, you want a Coke, they have Coke. You want a Diet Coke, they have Diet Coke. You can get a Red Bull, you can get a Mountain Dew, you can get anything you want. Hot! Now when you've been talking all day and you're tired, and see, I don't even drink coffee. I don't even drink anything warm. Everything I drink is cold. I just want something cold. Can I please have something cold? I'm like, do you have any ice cubes? They're like, nope. We don't have ice cubes. So here's what I did. I bought a bunch of Diet Coke and I... Went back in the kitchen. I put it in the fridge. And man, the next morning I woke up and I said, oh, I'm going to go down there. I'm getting me a cold Diet Coke. I might pour it on my head. I'm going to be so happy. And I go down there and I go in the kitchen. And there's the guy in the turban with a big smile on his face. And he took all my Diet Coke out and put it on the shelf. And he goes, oh, I have your Diet Coke. I'm like, I hate you right now. I really hate you. There's places in the world where people go where they don't do things like we do. You know, like simple things. Like there's places in the world where people don't sleep with pillows. Do you know that? And so when you go and you stay in a hotel there, they don't have pillows. But you go to the front desk and you say, do you have pillows? And they go in a room and they get pillows. You know why? Because they know that if anybody from America comes to stay there, they're going to need a pillow. Because we're not really interested in living like they live. We want to have the comforts of home in a foreign land. See? The tourist wants to visit that presents no risk or challenge. That's what we want. We want to go visit a place, but we want the food and the hotel and the language. See, we go to a foreign country, and then we come home, we go, oh, this one hotel, we loved it because the guy at the front spoke English. They don't speak English there, but we want somebody to speak English. We want somebody to, to, oh, look, honey, they have hamburgers. Yay! It's a very peculiar thing. Why do we go there, but we want here? That's a tourist mindset. That's what tourists do. Tourists want to be in a different place, but they want it to resemble the place they came from. And when the tourism visit is over, the tourist goes back to their previous way of life. They go home, they unpack their bags, and they go right back to the way life used to be. They have their photos, their souvenirs, and their memories to commemorate the trip. And you know why? 
Or maybe, maybe you now see why our country's filled, filled with churches that accommodate tourists. Because that's what people want. You know why every country has a tourist area? Because there's great profit in tourists. You know why? There's churches everywhere that accommodate tourism because there's great profit in that. Because that's what people want. But see, pilgrims are different. Pilgrims leave the comforts of home in search of their true home. Remember, we defined pilgrimage as the deliberate, determined, intentional awareness of what it means to move in mission as a member of the family of God. So when it comes to a pilgrimage, that requires an act of faith, a placing of oneself in the hands of God. You see, a pilgrim, a pilgrim sets out in search of something holy, away from the structures and the predictability of everyday life. Rather than seeking out what's comfortable, the pilgrim willingly accepts Change, discomfort, and even at times danger for the sake of the destination. You see, if you think about it, what we believe about life after death directly affects what we believe about life before death. Meaning that your belief, not what you say, but what you actually believe about the destination determines how you travel on the path to get there. So the central event in the Old Testament is pilgrimage. God leading His people through the leadership of Moses. He calls a bunch of oppressed, despondent, Slaves who were desperate in their situation. He calls them out of their familiarity of the bondage of Egypt to risk their lives in a new and different way for their freedom. And what awaits them when he liberates them? A desert. A desert. But within the desert, there's a chance to commune with and worship the God of their liberation. So here's a question for you. Why didn't God just kill the Egyptians? So God says, I choose you as my people. I'm going to free you from liberation. So what? I'm just going to kill all the Egyptians. He could have done that. I mean, it would have been simple for him. He could have snapped his fingers and just killed them all. It would have been very easy. Or how about this? Why didn't God just teleport all of the children of Israel to the promised land? It would have been so much easier. And think about it. God has the power to turn water into blood, to bring frogs, lice, flies, all these plagues. He has all the power to control anything he wants to, but he doesn't kill the Egyptians or he doesn't teleport his people. Why? You see, the plagues are an indication of the importance God places on the pilgrimage. The whole thing is an illustration of the pilgrimage, you see, by leaving the predictable routines of Egypt, God's people have to place themselves in his hands. You see, not everyone left, did they? No. You didn't have to leave. You chose to leave. You don't have to take the way of escape. You have to choose the way of escape. They follow the Lord into the wilderness. And what happens? You begin to read the Bible and you see that the exodus changes them. That through the journey, through the, the, the wilderness, they become the people of God. God makes a holy people through pilgrimage. Yeah. 
They don't live as tourists, but as pilgrims. You see, think about this. Pilgrimage is progressive. It's progressive. In other words, so God, God's going to free his people from Egypt. Now, now think about something that's just become way too familiar to you. Think about how this works. It's, it's a progression. See, first God leads them through the Red Sea. Then he leads them to Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. And then from there, he leads them to a, a tabernacle where they start communing with him in the tabernacle. And then, then it's later on, God teaches them how to fight in battle. It doesn't all happen at one time. The, the pilgrimage progressively grows them into who God wants them to be. Kind of like sanctification. You see? Pilgrimage. It's progressive. This is why, side note, this is why people on pilgrimage are never bored. This is what makes me so grieved about what I see going on in America today. I see a bunch of bored churchgoers that are probably mostly lost, for sure misdirected. And definitely not on pilgrimage. You see, this is what we have to understand. The pilgrim is changed by the journey. That's God's design. That's his design. Think about this. Look, it's every detail. Look, the, why does Paul bring out the fact that they got water from a rock? Why does he say that? Is it, is it, am I the only person that reads that and goes, hey, I spend all day thinking about that. Why did God bring water from a rock? Here's, now, it's not like God didn't know that he was sending them into a place without water. So why didn't God just make a stream? Because. That's not the way pilgrimage works. You see, the rock, the rock forces them to rely upon God. He's changing them. He knows they're going to be thirsty. He uses the fact that they're thirsty to change them. But we don't like being thirsty. And so in a comfort-filled world like America, we just take matters into our own hands. You see? Now what about the New Testament? The, the central story of the New Testament is pilgrimage. Jesus is the ultimate pilgrim. He journeys through life. He suffers. He's rejected. He dies. And he returns home changed. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus go back to heaven the same way he came? Now let's think. Did he? Or was he changed by the pilgrimage? When Jesus went back, he had scars in his hands and in his feet. He was different. He was different from the pilgrimage. You see... The story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness proves that he's a pilgrim. No tourist goes into the desert to fast for 40 days. See, no, no one's ever come to me and said, Hey, Pastor, I'm going on vacation. I'm going to fast for two weeks. <laughs> no, no. We do the opposite, right? The opposite. So what does Jesus do? He places himself in the hands of the Father. See, when you read the New Testament, you find Jesus has times, many times of frustration and anger and sadness and bewilderment, all, all the way even to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
But he trusts God enough to remain in a strange place and amidst of strange people in strange circumstances. Imagine the difference between existing in heaven amongst the Trinity and being here. You talk about a different world. But after his pilgrimage, he's ready to lead his people on their new and final exodus, isn't he? But what about us? What about me and you? Do we try to live our lives as risk-free as possible? We spend a lot of time trying to live like tourists, don't we? We don't spend much time daily denying ourselves or picking up our cross to follow Him like pilgrims. See, to live as a tourist, you desire some beautiful scenery and some comfort. You may have to walk some distance. You may, you may do something. You may have to sweat a little bit, especially if you go to Disney World or something like that. You know, it's not all going to be comfortable, but it's worth it. But to live as a pilgrim is to set your sights on something far bigger than scenery or comfort. A tourist travels according to the established paths. In other words, when you when you're a tourist, you follow what the guidebooks say or the travel websites say is the, the safe places to go. But a pilgrim breaks out of the normal routine and finds that you encounter God's holiness in the marginal, strange, unexpected places. The tourist on their trip, sleep soundly at night in a comfortable bed. But it's the pilgrim who has the awesome dreams. You see, really, the tourist just has whatever the next day is to look forward to, but then, really, the ultimate destination is to just get back to what was. That's not what God's called us to. We're not going back to what was. We're pressing daily to somewhere different. Utterly different. Amazingly different. You see, we need to heed the warning this morning. It's very possible to sit in church and think you're a pilgrim, but to in fact be a religious tourist who's just sort of seeing the sights, hanging around holy places, being in proximity to things that can change you but not ever being changed. You see, when you're on a pilgrimage, the one that you follow, he, he wasn't afraid to live and to die. It was hard. It wasn't easy. It was excruciating. It was difficult. It was frustrating to be betrayed and to be let down time after time. But to keep pressing on because the ultimate destination of the pilgrimage is worth it. So through the abandonment and the abuse and even the nailing on a cross, Jesus didn't shirk the transformation at the hand of God. You see, today, 
in this moment, we're the fruit of that transformation. We're the fruit of His pilgrimage. And so what I want us to do is I want us to just end this morning by thinking for a moment. Where are you? Do you live like a tourist? Or are you on a pilgrimage? You see, the children of Israel... They didn't, they didn't get to choose who they walked with. They didn't get to choose which direction they went. No. They were committed individually to the mission, to the God who had revealed Himself to them. And so they in their dedication to this God and this mission, then in turn dedicated themselves to this pilgrimage, whoever was going to be with them and wherever it was going to lead. That's what it was. And whenever they tried to, to divert, whenever they tried to take matters into their own hands, think, think about this. There they are. One of the illustrations Paul gives is grumbling against God. There they are in the wilderness, on the pilgrimage. And they grumble. And why do they grumble? They grumble because God gave them manna. Let me ask you a question. Was God limited in His ability to provide an adequate menu to his people in the wilderness. He could have rained down a buffet like this world has never seen if he wanted to. He could have fed them anything he wanted to feed them. Now, he knows everything. So he knows that in Egypt, what they've been eating, and so do we because we can read the Bible. Because when they start grumbling, what do they say? Oh, if we were only back in Egypt where we could have pomegranates and quail and olives. Oh, it would be so good. God knows that. So why didn't God provide pomegranates and olives and quail? Because the pilgrimage is about changing us. God doesn't accommodate for tourists. He orchestrates for pilgrims. So I'm just telling you, what you've heard this morning is a very simple yet undeniable reality. Either you, right now in this moment, are being continually and radically transformed by God. Or, you're misdirected. It's A or B. You're either a tourist or a pilgrim. And they're undeniable. Undeniable evidences of a pilgrim's life. So you, as we stand, let's stand before God and, and let's think about who it is that we've come here today to worship. Come on, you can stand. You can write this down and stand at the same time. It's all right. See, sometimes pilgrims have to do things differently. Let's think about this God whom we've come to worship today. And let's think about Him in these terms. 
that our Lord Jesus, once the lone pilgrim, now is the pilgrimage path. He is the road that we're called to take through life. That's what he is. So whatever it is in your heart that you're trying to use as a crutch, or whatever it is in your heart that you're trying to use right now in your mind as you're trying to deal with the conviction that the Spirit wants you to feel, to say, you know, you know, God, I'm a pilgrim. But I am kind of flat and I am kind of stuck and I am kind of bored. And my life is full of a lot of things that don't really have anything to do with you. And I do spend way more time thinking about how to make myself more comfortable and advance my standard of living than I think about being more holy and close to you. But God, I'm a pilgrim. If you, to say that in your mind is to lie to the Holy Spirit and to say that Jesus, who is the pilgrimage path, is boring or insufficient or somehow secondary to some garbage in this world. Just be real. I, I, it's, it's not, it has nothing to do with me. You. I love you. On the back of that handout, there are some resources to help you. If you're misdirected, to redirect. Some of you are here this morning, and you, you, you can say, you know, there was a time in my past where I was living the life of a pilgrim, but it, it's faded away. Somehow I've, I've drifted away. I've gotten cold. I've, yeah. Well, come home today. Come home.